You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Secret Rooms. Definitive Edition. Chapter 17. The Found Letter. From the Journals of Gray and Penrose. Nine years ago. James. I stayed away from Abigail and Lucy in the days after that library altercation. Partly because it hurt to think about either of them. Partly because I was genuinely attempting to do the right thing, giving them the space to grow closer. I knew I was overcompensating when they approached me before the morning run, and I deliberately sped up, sprinting so hard and far that my legs burned and muscles reeled, thinking back to that day when I had last seen my mother and father. But I wasn't running from anything now, nor towards it, I was trapped in stasis within these barbed stone walls. And emotional overreaction to my friends this may have been, but it felt dishonest to stand still, when I could think of nothing to say that would not make our circumstances worse. I spent much of my time alone with Dr. Potts, learning from him as he narrated his procedures, making good on my expressed interests as a medical assistant. I was permitted to hand him supplies and implements, and he did not immediately reject my suggestions, which allowed me to grow in confidence. I walked the walls in the evenings, just to get fresh air away from the sting of surgical ethanol. It was while on one of these walks that I discovered a folded sheet of paper strung between the bars at the front gate. I gazed out into the woods, searching for a sign of who might have deposited it, and then glanced back behind me towards the house, in case this was in fact left by one of the residents. There was not another soul in sight. In the fading sunset, I retrieved the paper, sniffed it, and unfolded it. I recognised hints of our house soap, as well as traces of gunpowder. The message inside read, My darling, I shall be here at midnight. I recognised the handwriting, as Lucy's. There were only three conclusions. Firstly, that this message was intended for Abigail, and that seemed unlikely, considering how much time the two spent together of late. They would have had ample opportunity for conveying meeting times for whatever late-night tryst they might fancy. Secondly, that Lucy was heavily involved in some way with another resident at Weirwood. Since I had never seen her as close to anyone as she was to Abigail, this seemed highly unlikely. Unless it was meant for me. For a moment, as I headed towards the house, I wondered if she had spotted my propensity for walking alone at that hour, and taken the opportunity to contact me in a way physical proximity would not glean success. But the use of her words, My, my darling, darling, had me convinced this could not be the case. She would surely call me James which left the third, now fourth, and most likely possibility. She was somehow communicating, as my first suspicions had detected, with a person beyond the wall. I found Abigail at Nathan's hut and waved her outside. Hi. She said nervously. Listen, we really need to talk. Lucy and I both miss you and... At this I held up the message. Is that for me? I don't think so. It was left at the front gate. I waited for her to perform the relevant mental gymnastics to get to where I was. She did this faster than most. Stonewall Jackson. The Confederate General? No. Lucy was talking one time about someone she knew in the army. 
It was on the day you arrived, actually. It wasn't her daddy or her brother, and she changed the subject on me like she does. So, a sweetheart in the army. What do we do? We'll talk to her. I'm not going to Catherine with this until we know more, and I'm not going to ignore it. She shouldn't be fraternizing with anyone outside of Weirwood. At this, Abigail regarded me warily. It puts us all in danger. First of all, we put that note back where you found it. I disagree. It's not ours. Don't mess with Lucy's decisions. We may have to, I replied grimly. But we went and returned the note all the same, then found Lucy in the kitchen with Alison. She smiled when she saw the two of us together, but that faded when Abigail said quietly, My darling, we shall be in the library. A few minutes later, Abigail and I sat in reading chairs, both jiggling our respective right knees nervously, a trait I am certain she picked up to make me feel, conversely, more comfortable. Lucy entered, looking exceptionally nervous. The candlelight was dim, and the leather books around us provided one of the most comforting aromas I could conceive of. Even so, I was having to fight to stay focused. Who is he? Lucy regarded us both and said with steadiness. I'd say it ain't your business, but I owe you both the truth. The man that note was for is my betrothed, a private in the army by the name of Cole McCormick. When did you have time to fall in with a fellow from the army? All my life, growing up in Buckley. He's a few years older than me, and we decided to wait until I'm 18 to get married anyhow. But we were always friends, and it had always been our agreement. Then this whole thing blew up last year, and when he turned 16, he got conscripted to go fight those goblins. I guess they were desperate for any able-bodied man. He knew where I was headed, and he swore he'd get word to me. And now he has, and... I think he means for me to run away with him. He has relatives out west, and I believe we can make it. I do. I could see fear in her, and excitement. And something else. Is he still with the army? He deserted to come find me. So he can't stay here with us? I ground my teeth, because if the army come looking... They'll kill him. Yes, they will. And if I stay here and send him away, they'll probably find and kill him anyhow. Do it. He's deserted his country. You cannot give up your life for someone like that. The pair of them gaped at me, appalled. While I don't hold with deserting, I can understand... Not wanting to have a government who left us high and dry decide where to point me to my death. Do you think I should go then, Abby? Do you love him? Yes. And beyond that, he is a young man I have promised myself to. He has nobody but me. And beyond that... Do you wish to leave here? Lucy nodded sadly, no longer able to look at us. It would be for the best. Can you both let me go? I don't want to. But if it's what you want... It's not the only thing I want. But I cannot have everything. That's why I should have asked you both in the first place. Well, I... 
I cannot in good conscience encourage you to leave here. It is far too dangerous out there. If you run, you will not survive. Here within these walls, you might. Lucy now looked at me, eyes filled with tears. You know I'm logically right. Logic isn't everything, said Abigail. Then you must make the choice yourself, I said to Lucy. She wiped her face slowly and thoughtfully and considered taking a deep breath. I'm going to go, she concluded at last. Then she kissed each of us once tenderly and left the room. Abigail distracted Catherine in her office while I obtained the gate key, and at midnight the three of us stood by the front entrance, trembling. There was still time to hold her back, still an option to force her to stay. I did not take it, and as Abigail unlocked and opened the gate as quietly as she could, Lucy, clad in a grown man's overcoat, stepped over the threshold and out into the wild world. She turned back to us as the gate closed and found herself lost for words. And then, not far off, from behind a tree, a handsome young man, only a few years older than I, stepped out. He was wearing plain clothes, not his uniform, but he carried a Winchester rifle and wore a pack. He'll take care of her, Abigail muttered as Lucy melted away into the night. And we said our goodbyes too late. Abigail. The dawn next day was grey. I woke and wished I was in the remnants of that picture gallery dream, just for the stolen moments of spending a little more time with her. But I could not remember what I had dreamed about that morning. We went for our run together. Nathan waved to James and I as we went round, and naturally nobody had seen Lucy, which led to a lengthy search of the grounds which I knew was fruitless. I avoided Catherine's eye and prayed she had not detected me at midnight thirty, sneaking that key back to her ring while she apparently slept. James evaded contact too, and I could tell by the dark rings under his bloodshot eyes that he had not slept at all, and that he had been crying. And yet, strangely, the tears had not come for me yet. We worked the carrot patch, and I occasionally stole glances at the front gate just willing for that girl to appear and cry out that she'd made a terrible fucking mistake. Over the course of the morning, as the search parties grew smaller, I became angrier and angrier at myself. And then she was there. I caught the flash of blonde hair in the dull, clouded bars of sunshine. It moved behind the gate, and I was suddenly standing bolt upright, the shovel fallen from my hands. Something was terribly wrong with her. She was leaning against the metal, her head down, hair awry, and seemed delirious, 
James notice now and we rush down to the front. It was as we got closer that I spotted the blood. It had caked at her shoulder. The coat had gone and her dress was muddy and hung loosely. Her movements drifted from sleepwalking to erratic spasms every few seconds and when she threw her head back to call out to us, her eyes opened. They were orange, fierce, unfocused. My hands were over my mouth as I realized what had happened. Don't let her in! What are we supposed to do? Lucy! Joe rushed forward, and I cried out, grabbing at the back of her shirt and holding her still. Then I bodily turned her away from that face and those noises, only to see Catherine striding toward me, a rifle in her hand. Before I could shout, before I even decided what I could shout, Catherine had taken aim and fired through the gate. I fell to my knees, shielding Joe, who screamed in confusion and fear as I held her tightly. This was my first encounter with a Wendigo, and I would have given up most anything upon the spot for it to be someone else but her. I stared and stared and breathed in ragged gasps as James came into my field of vision, his face stricken with horror and grief. And yet no tears were coming from my eyes. What was wrong with me? Was I broken? James, the funeral for Lucy gathered that afternoon, the quicker to begin to come to terms with what had happened to the first of our number who had strayed beyond the safety of this hallowed place. Her body was recovered, wrapped in a blanket, and lowered into the ground. We never saw hide nor hair of Private McCormack. I chose a painfully fitting poem by William Wordsworth, which I had been aware of before, but whose significance now came crashing in on me every time I let my composure drop. I travelled among unknown men in lands beyond the sea, nor England did I know till then what love I bore to thee. Tis past that melancholy dream nor will I quit thy shore a second time, for still I seem to love thee more and more. A slumber did my spirit seal, I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, Fair as a star, and only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled round in earth's diurnal course, with rocks and stones and trees. All departed from that place, 
leaving Abigail and I standing over the little white stone. This will never not be our fault, said Abigail softly. I left her there and walked back towards the house, only to meet Catherine, who had been watching us. I looked at her fearfully, knowing what she knew. A terrible responsibility. But instead of shouting at me, instead of reprimanding or even coldly dismissing me, Catherine reached out and drew me into a tight embrace. I felt myself go limp within her arms. I have to separate you two now. You understand why, of course. I trembled as I surmised what was evident. We are bad for one another. She nodded. You'll be apprentice to Potts. And Abigail will stay with me. I understand. Are we never to speak? Well, by all means, be cordial. But you can't get too close to her. She has to find her place with other people. You'll be friends. But no more than that. No, James. My parents aren't coming back for me, are they? I don't think so, honey. At this I breathed in deeply and let it back out again. Good. I murmured and stepped back from her to pay my first serious visit to the doctor. Abigail was still standing beside the grave as Catherine approached her to break the news. It is these moments, the slow, unwilling closing of the front gate as Lucy walks away from us, offering one final smile of hope before she is gone. And my resignation in shutting the door as Abigail turns and gives me a backward glance, not knowing what will follow. They haunt me in wakefulness and in dreams. But for all the pain and regret which came with our short spell together, I am still thankful for the time when I felt like a whole person. You have been listening to episode 17 of Secret Rooms, The Found Letter, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. James Penrose, performed by Alex Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Lucy Weatherfield, performed by Theo Lee. And Catherine Holloway, performed by Maya Santandrea. Emotional, powerful music by Mattia Cupelli. Still, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Reawakening and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision, by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, 
Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gesiger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. Uncivil Outlaw, the first book after Steamheart, the beginning of Phase 2 of the New Century Multiverse, the audio drama series, is in production and will begin its release at the end of Secret Rooms. Meanwhile, the novel is available on Amazon, on the Kindle store, and in paperback form. It's a real page-turner, and it could definitely use a few reviews. 